welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. The ACGME requires residents to participate in scholarship and programs are required to provide an environment conducive to the production of scholarship and to acquiring the necessary skills involved. Today we are talking to Dr. Crafton Schreyer about a recent paper in AEM Education and Training entitled The Content Expert Program, a Structured Approach to Increase Emergency Medicine Resident Scholarly Activity. Dr. Crafton Schreier, MD, MBA, is an attending physician and associate professor of emergency medicine at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University, and she's currently the medical director of capacity management for the Temple University Health System. She also serves as the director of clinical operations for the Temple University Hospital Episcopal Campus Emergency Department and the associate director of clinical operations for Temple University Hospital's main campus emergency department. She's the director of the Emergency Medicine Administrative Fellowship at Temple University Hospital and the quality officer for the Department of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Schreyer additionally oversees the quality and safety of care thread for the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple. She was recently elected to the AEEM Board of Directors and we're delighted for the chance to talk to her about her work today. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available on the Brown Emergency Medicine blog at brownemblog.com. Dr. Schreyer, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So first, let's talk about the ACGME requirements for resident scholarly activity. So as most people know, emergency medicine residents are required to participate in scholarship and training programs are required to provide an environment conducive to scholarship so that residents develop critical thinking skills and literature appraisal skills, et cetera. But beyond that, how prescriptive is the ACGME in terms of how those requirements are to be fulfilled? So I was surprised, you know, as I got more involved in this myself and then was working on the this paper. Um, but despite that requirement, there is really no consensus definition of scholarship, uh, nor any set structure of program scholarly environments. Uh, so consequently, uh, you know, this leads to uncertainty amongst program leadership and residents on what counts towards the requirement, how much time is required to complete a scholarly activity, how they can identify and select a mentor, and then what the any, you know, if any clinical implications of the scholarly project are. So, so then let's talk theory for a second. What is scholarly activity and what is scholarship? So I think good, deep questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> those uh, familiar with the medical education literature likely know that most definitions of scholarly activity and scholarship stem from works done by Boyer and Glassic et al. So in brief, uh, kind of the way I like to summarize things is that scholarly activity is any activity that's approached in a systematic fashion. Um, you know, Glassic further actually specified that it requires clear goals, adequate preparation, adequate methods, some kind of significant result, uh, presentation of that result, and a reflective critique. Uh, scholarship, on the other hand, requires a scholarly approach to the activity, but also adds the expectation that the work must advance the knowledge in the field somehow, uh, typically by being publicly accessible in a format that others can build upon. Okay, well, that makes sense. So to that end, the research director's interest group of 
the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine made some recommendations that were then refined in 2018 by a consensus of key stakeholders in emergency medicine in 2018. So what were those recommendations? And did they jibe with the ACGME recommendations? Yeah, so those groups' initial recommendations included um, literature review, hypothesis formation, data collection, analysis, and interpretation. Uh, And then those initial recommendations were built upon to include uh, acceptable endpoints and outcomes of the scholarly projects. So things like systematic reviews, published original papers, uh, book chapters, evidence-based practice guidelines, QI exercises, or even public health projects. And, you know, these categorizations overlap with the current ACGME definitions of scholarly activity, which are also output-focused, and those include publications, abstracts, presentations, posters, chapters, research projects, and teaching or educational endeavors. Um, But while there is overlap, I think there are still some gaps that exist. Yeah. So what's missing, notably from both of them, are non-traditional forms of scholarship that... I feel, perhaps in a biased way, are becoming increasingly important. Um, You know, notably things in the, you know, uh, open access uh, digital world and things like that. Yep. And that's exactly what we were thinking. You know, I I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone that could argue that a contribution on on social media platform could go overlooked, you know, in this this current age. Um, You know, anything from a blog post to an instructional video to any other type of of FOMED material, in my mind, should be counted as a scholarly output. All right. So let's move into your program and your paper. So you developed a content expert program at your institution. So can you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about the background of the evolution of it? And how did that differ from what your program previously looked at, how scholarly activity had been pursued previously at your program? Sure. Um, So first, I can't take credit for the concept of the content expert program, or what we affectionately call the CEP. Um, That belongs to one of my co-authors, Dr. Del Portal, who was um, the brainchild kind of behind this. Um, But before implementation of the CEP, uh, at our place, scholarly outputs were really generated during the administrative rotation for the residents, which occurred in their final year of residency. And really one faculty member oversaw that rotation and provided mentorship. Um, And for my first few years as a faculty member, I was that person, (laughs) Uh, which was a daunting task, shall we say. Um, The CEP really allowed us to transform that into a more robust and longitudinal experience. So what we did was we set initially benchmark timelines for the projects uh, so that over a three-year residency, the first year would be spent on project conception the second on implementing the project, and then the third on completion and evaluation of the impact of the project. Uh, Residents initially were free to choose their topic areas, and then we worked to pair each resident with a faculty advisor based on the topic that they'd selected and the faculty member's expertise with that subject area. Um, They would meet independently over the three years of residency, and then an oversight committee, which was made up of uh, leadership within the department, both from the educational side and the operational side and the research side uh, would then guide the resident advisor pairs through the project. Um, Over time, we've made some changes, you know, as you might expect with any program like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, We ended up going from broad content areas like cardiology (laughs) to uh, more specific topic areas. Um, Like the one I just reviewed, for example, um, is a specific curriculum 
for the interns um, for the first six months of residency. Very cool. <laughs> um, we also added people that are section leads. So those with uh, expertise in particular areas. So we have one for research, one for education, and one for ops. Uh, and they also are each paired with a resident advisor pair to help them, uh, depending on what the, the project is really leaning towards over those three years. Awesome. All right. So tell us a little bit more about your design and your methods. What kind of, what kind of outcomes were you evaluating? So, you know, we really aim to capture all the scholarly outputs from the program. So basically we tallied anything and everything produced by the residents <laughs> um, as soon as they went through this. So uh, for each graduating resident year, we looked at the total number of projects that were generated from the CEP and the total number of residents involved in each project. Um, and I think it's important to note the two weren't mutually exclusive. So one resident could have worked on multiple projects and one project could have had multiple residents um, as contributors. Then we categorize each project uh, according to the type of output. So we did these big overarching categories like educational, operational, and research. But then we also had a miscellaneous category because we found that some people were more creative than us and <laughs> came up with projects in other areas. Um, and uh, the outputs in the projects, uh, just like the residents in the projects, were also not mutually exclusive. So one project could lend itself to multiple outputs. Um, and then finally, you know, we really feel that the team atmosphere in emergency medicine is important to promote. So we were tracking collaborations on the projects mm -hmm. and looked at those from an intradepartmental, interdepartmental, and interdisciplinary uh, lenses. All right. So let's talk about your results. What did you find about the impact of the CEP in terms of scholarly output at your institution? So, you know, we had an idea when we were creating it that it would be successful, <laughs> um, but the impact was even better than what we'd anticipated, to be honest. That's the best. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, during the first six years that the CEP was a thing, uh, a total of 187 scholarly outputs were generated, um, and that's compared to 72 in the six years preceding the the CEP, wow. um, our average number of outputs per resident actually increased from one to 2.5, which was a significant increase. Very. Okay. How about the effect on collaborations? So it's tougher to do a direct comparison on these because we didn't actually have, we weren't tracking data on collaborations right. before the CEP. Um, but afterwards, there were a total of 111, um, which in, with an average of 1.5 per resident. And in my opinion, I think it's safe to say the overall number had to increase mm. um, because I personally know that every project generated before the CEP was not a collaborative effort. Right. So, and you would know. You know <laughs> right. Yes. As that person, I would know. <laughs> um, so I find this really interesting because you didn't particularly incentivize the residents, you know, no carrots, also no sticks. Um, but it seems like what this program did was provide them a framework, some more structure, direction, and you lowered... You just made it, you kind of made it easier for them. You lowered that activation energy. You know, you made it e easier for them to get a mentor, to find a direction, move forward, easier to collaborate. So what were your thoughts about what that all meant when you, when you reviewed these results? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, we, we kind of thought the program would be successful. Um, and that's because of exactly what you just said. Um, we wanted to make it easier for people to accomplish things. Um, and not just for the residents to, to go through it, but for the faculty that were advising them. Mm -hmm. uh, because we found that, you know, it was tough to find faculty mentors because the faculty, uh, just like the residents, kind of lacked a direction around the scholarly output. Mm -hmm. um, so by enabling them 
to, uh, you know, choose a topic, um, making it easier for them to find a mentor by facilitating the pairing and then giving them guidance along the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, we just wanted to make it easier for people to succeed. And, um, you know, really we found in other areas too, that's really just how you generate sustainable change. Fantastic. So there are always some limitations and you go through these in your paper. Um, but if someone were interested in applying this at their own program, what advice would you give them? Uh, great question. You know, I, it, we started by asking uh, departmental leadership um, to support the program. And I think that was really a key. Um, you know, our chairperson wasn't was in support of it. And we really identified some key faculty members that were willing to put in the time to be on the oversight committee. Um, so once you have that core group, it's easier than to recruit other faculty yeah. <laughs> to serve as advisors when they know there's a base of people willing to help them. Um, so I think getting the, the right people at the table first is the most important. Uh, and then once you have that, I think it's all about creating a structure and sticking with it and then implementing it for everyone at once. You know, so when we did it, the whole, all, all the residents that year were doing a CEP program, you know, project, mm -hmm. even though it was new. Um, it wasn't just, you know, you could choose to do it or not. Right. Um, and then, you know, we stuck with the structure of the oversight committee. We kept the same number of updates we anticipated. And, you know, once the program was up and running, we got feedback and, and were able to make some some changes to make it better for our, per, our program personally. Um, but I think making too many changes from the outset could kind of derail the efforts. So I would say get the key players at the table, get a key structure in place, and then after that, be willing to, to change based on feedback. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for this work and for your time, Dr. Schreyer. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this AEM Education and Training Podcast. Be sure to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to all our AEM podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.